0: Welcome, Kate Pollock from the Wittenberg University, just down the street from me. And gosh, we're going to talk ethics and comics. Welcome, Kate.
1: Uh, it's so nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So let's jump in here and get right to it. I want to know how you got into comic studies.
1: Oh, uh, t- it's been a story of falling in love again and again. And so uh, when I was uh, very little, uh, we lived out in San Francisco and my parents had to work a lo- lot of long hours. And uh, so I didn't get to spend a ton of time with them. Uh, but uh, anytime they had a little extra money, they would buy me a comic book as kind of a treat and we would read it together. And so uh, much of my kind of like childhood uh was surrounded by love in the context of comics. And, you know, my parents got me into uh, Calvin and Hobbes and all of these others. I first got uh, Calvin and Hobbes uh, when we did this uh, very difficult move from Cleveland, where we were living with my grandmother, to Cincinnati, where we didn't really know anyone. Uh, and so all of these kind of like difficult moments in life have been punctuated with comics being associated with love nonetheless. Uh, And then in high school, I kind of fell out of it because uh, I was afraid of being a nerd. And of course, I went to Walnut Hills down Cincinnati. It's a school chock full of nerds. There's no avoiding it. Uh, But I got back into uh, comics in college uh, through a boyfriend who uh, just uh, happened to have like the entire run of Hellblazer. And I hadn't read Hellblazer more than like one issue or something like that from uh, from uh, back in high school, and I just burned through all of it in the space of a couple of weeks. Uh, it was, i did nothing else. I should have been doing schoolwork, but you know, whatever. Uh, and. Uh, uh, Jason Payne, who's actually still at OSU, he was generous enough to let me write a paper in one of his classes on comics, and that was the first time that I started thinking of comics as a literary form that I could do something with intellectually as well. And uh, then I got into grad school, and I uh, spent all of grad school making the argument that comics were, in fact, just another literary form like poetry and fiction. And uh, and so, you know, it's wrapped up in that kind of like emotional familial history, but it's also uh, wrapped up in uh, kind of deep intellectual love for it as well. Uh, I, I I can't unthink comics from my moral and ethical development as a human being because uh, the, uh, the way comics uh, staged so much of the kinds of questions that I had when I was growing up, the kinds of questions that I was facing once I was thinking of myself as a scholar. uh, All of that has had some kind of intersection with comics and uh, it's, you know, uh, it's, it's been a lifetime love.
0: Yeah, that's really remarkable. I love the way you connect it to grandparents and kind of the the space of, of, Growing and refining and complicating your emotions in and through this sort of positive kind of space of love and then a boyfriend and then of course your more formal study. It's like really beautifully articulated Um, So speaking of um, empathy or emotions and comics um, Yeah, this seems obvious to me now (laughs) that you would write in the gutter but Let's talk about that for the rest of our viewers.
1: Uh, so, Ethics in the Gutter uh, started actually uh, with an, uh, an intellectual project that began in my master's degree, uh, and uh, specifically it started with a very, very rough and very, very early version of what became the fifth chapter on uh, Hellblazer. Uh, and it's uh, it, it's a one-shot comic, part of like a triptych like three part uh, kind of travel narrative of John Constantine uh, trying to find information about this shadow dog uh, that is apparently hearkening the apocalypse. But I was fascinated with this particular comic uh, because uh, the Tasmanian Aborigine ghost woman uh, says, essentially directly to him uh, 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 that she, it, she answered uh, she, an, she answered his questions but it's the implication there is that he didn't ask the right questions and he's just been on this journey where he's seeking to empathize with Tasmanian Aborigines he's trying to dreamwalk with them uh, with their dead spirits Uh, And he winds up in the dream of the dead British soldiers who uh, committed uh, hundreds and hundreds of atrocities against them instead. And so it's clear that he hasn't quite gotten the picture from his desire to empathize with them, uh, that he's in fact failed to understand how to interact with the Tasmanian aborigines, and so isn't going to ask the right questions to get the information he needs. And so that kind of started me on this path of, okay, well, what is it to kind of empathize with uh, someone who's in this really distinct uh, 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 cultural moment that you might not be able to bridge that gap? What are the kinds of questions that you need to ask? What is this uh, comic commenting on about how we... Uh, we try to feel our way into our shared humanity, but sometimes fail with that in part by essentially doing what we do when we uh, over-anthropomorphize in the context of like the animal world, we don't recognize that the difference itself, the differences in those experiences have to be plumbed as well. And so there's some danger in empathizing in it cutting you off from the ways in which different people experience things in different ways, simply through embodied truths. But also there's danger in who you wind up empathizing with. Because after all, his kind of getting lumped into that uh, dream of the dead British soldiers is ultimately saying, oh no, you're more similar to uh, the perpetrators in this regard than the victims, and you failed to recognize that. Uh, And that uh, that started me kind of on this project, and I kind of put the paper aside for many years, uh, and went through and wrote about comics in a number of different classes, and started writing articles and so on. Uh, most of my uh, most of my work's been on Lucifer. Uh, I actually have a new uh, 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 an, another uh, article coming out on Lucifer pretty soon, uh, and is kind of similarly exploring uh, it. You know how empathy is staged in comics, uh, and you know on one hand that's a, that's a plot element. Like that's something that you could do in fiction or in nonfiction as well, but. What started to dawn on me as I was teaching a Holocaust literature class with uh, my mentor, uh, Gary Weissman, down at the University of Cincinnati, is that students started to engage more carefully with their empathetic reactions once they hit mouse. When we were reading like survivor narratives in kind of traditional form, uh, Uh, Very often they were saying like, oh, now I've walked a mile in their shoes. And it's like, no, whoa, let's not go there. Uh, But once they got to Mouse, they were so aware from the staging of the comic, from the the structure itself, that they were not uh, inhabiting that same mental space as Vladek and Artie in the comic. Uh, that I was like, oh, that's starting to bring it together because it's partially about point of view. It's partially about the way the panels are arranged and how you take that in as a viewer. I could go on
0: about this for quite a while, though. (laughs) No, that's great. I love it. Um, um, The gutter... Tell me why the gutter is so important to to this particular work.
1: Uh, So... First off, like it, w- when we think about the gutter, we tend to think of the actual like literal margin between comics. Uh, but I think of the gutter uh, in a slightly more metaphorical way where uh, where it 's more the fact of two distinct images being conjoined, uh, and so like there might not be like a literal uh, mar- uh, margin there by which you 're kind of jumping between panels, but rather maybe a frame or uh there are other kind of implications there are lots of implied gutters and uh that process of imaginative joining which can only take place uh it, uh after you've kind of taken in more of the page uh is this wonderful imaginative process where you're collaborating with uh, uh you're collaborating with the creators uh and that makes you, uh, as Scott McCloud of course said in his own discussion of the gutter, it makes you complicit in the actions, but it also creates this uh, space for potentially self-reflection because it's not just how you imagine these things uh, together, but why you're imagining them in the ways that you are and what that says about your own positionality, uh, when you're paying attention to, how you can conjoin those images, what that says about your relationship to the material that's being presented and the characters Uh, and uh, the gutter as this kind of like metaphorical collaborative space uh, symbolized uh, something important to me about how we reach across uh, these kind of emotional boundaries uh, and in terms of Empathy sometimes uh, to benefit uh, beneficial ends, but sometimes in really problematic ways as well and Also the way in which we're trying to negotiate uh, our own kind of like ethical and moral compasses uh, To uh, figure out how a story should be told and so that uh, the gutter becomes the staging ground for a series of really difficult negotiations on a couple of different psychological levels. And, uh, and I think it has a profound impact even when it's not kind of literally physically there on the page. Uh, it's, it's part of what comics are. I mean, it, it, it was even there back with Hogarth. Uh, it, uh, the wall itself becomes the gutter. And, uh, and uh, so that, that, that space of uh, collaboration—it it, uh, has those kind of emotional, ethical, and uh, intellectual implications that I find really provocative.
0: Yeah, that's so beautifully articulated, um, Kate. Um, I was thinking—you know—very often, you know, we talk to our students about the the kind of frame and, therefore, the gutter. Um, as a kind of discrete series of time-space units. And I think we forget, um, you know, to talk about how the spaces between the frames are just as important for the very reasons that you just talked about. And also, I mean, gosh, like so many comic book creators are using that space to re-educate us about how to insert, right, ourselves and our emotions, our ethics into this space
1: yeah it, it's really phenomenal for me like it's in the first chapter uh in uh my book uh it's uh jp Stassen uh, just I, I feel like he he does some really masterful work with the gutter in asking you to reflect on what you're actually using that space for. Because I mean, in spite of being a comic about the Rwandan genocide, there's there's very little genocide within the context of the comic, but it's always lurking there in the background. And so it's like, okay, exactly, how are you, you using that imaginative space and why? And uh, it, just those gentle restagings for the viewer, uh, to prompt them to reflect on uh, what they're expecting to see, uh, and uh, and what they're imagining instead of what's actually being shown.
0: Um, let me uh, let's. I'm so excited by everything that you're doing here. Um, can we talk? Move a little bit into. You've already begun to do this with me right now, but how this this work that you do that's so important. Between the form, the emotions, and then the ethics systems can actually go back and trouble the historical record. I know this is other work that you do.
1: Well, I, and I see these all as really related projects, and thank you so much for uh, digging into this with me because it's just such a joy to talk about. Uh, even though I'm talking about like really troubling parts of uh, parts of the past. Uh, It's, you know, uh, up on the screen, we have a couple of Holocaust comics, which is, uh, you know, part of a project that I uh, have briefly sidelined, but want to go back to, uh, where most of what I talk about is uh, not necessarily disavowed histories, but very often misrepresented and misunderstood histories, and and so uh, I think about all of the comics that I work with, I'm always looking for these kind of historical fiction elements, uh, and I'm always looking at how they're trying to restage that historical record as something that is potentially uh, more accessible to a broader number of people, that's more inclusive, uh, that's maybe showing stories in an unexpected way, uh, or that's, uh, that's trying to recraft a particular memory uh, so we can see a broader range of uh, interpretations for what this, uh, what this historical past means. I mean, just like on a basic level, actually representing some atrocities is first of all, the most important thing. Uh, like it, when I was working with Scalp, I mean, uh, I knew a lot of this history uh, it, uh, going in in terms of the Pine Ridge Reservation and so on, but I, I had like particularly devoted parents who gave me stuff outside of what was occurring in my history books. Uh, but just the fact of representation isn't enough in itself. It's how you're representing it. It's how you're creating it. It's whose story is getting represented at the expense of whoms. And, uh, and I just see this... Uh, this wonderful uh, prospect in so many comics of comics creators, comics writers, and artists taking that uh, opportunity of writing this kind of popular uh, form uh, really seriously by educating their readership about lesser known issues. Uh, 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 Matt Johnson's uh, Incognito is one of my favorites too. Uh, And, you know, I I had no idea about the story of Walter White, uh, uh, former head of the NAACP, before coming across that comic. And it not only staged the story in a really interesting fictionalized way, but also uh, prompted a lot of people to do research beyond that and to kind of return to not only what they know about history, but to start questioning what they don't know about history,
0: yeah that's absolutely true with this with Auschwitz here, how would you um, carry us through this kind of first series of um, you know vertical panels
1: oh that's an interesting question when uh, when you're considering uh, auschwitz, uh, there are so many interesting kind of versions of representations. Uh, and I was really taken with this visual representation in part because uh, the perspective is staged as you're approaching, but suddenly you're also given this aerial perspective at the end that almost almost contradicts what I think uh, uh croce's uh, uh, the purpose was uh, in not fully kind of immersing you in that space of victimhood throughout uh, where we have, uh, we have a number of scenes kind of elsewhere in the comic where he's trying to kind of immerse you fully in that, uh, in that space of the Holocaust victim, not just the, not a survivor, but uh, those who were, uh, those who were annihilated. Uh, But in this space, we get this kind of like elevated view that almost tends to, uh, uh, propel us to some extent outside, uh, outside of, uh, this experiential platform that he's creating and his art's so beautiful and so rich and his environments are so well developed, uh, that I, I, that I always think of them as uh, kind of full on sensory experience. So I'm always wondering, uh, uh, about his use of point of view in that because sometimes uh, sometimes you 're right in the thick of things and sometimes he propels you out and i 'm not always sure why he
0: does that <laughs> well yeah it 's beautiful right and it 's also um, it 's um, of course like you said it's, it's it 's complicatedly the aesthetics are complicated. Um, so, Lucifer, you brought up earlier, and um, yeah, how, you know, this this story and its kind of reconstruction here, Tell yeah, talk to us about origin stories in comics and, well, Lucifer.
1: Lucifer remains one of my favorite comics of all time, and I know, uh, you know, in spite of being kind of a spin-off of Sandman, uh, <clears throat> and uh, spinoffs tend to get a little bit less uh, kind of play as favorites. Uh, it it always captured this a certain magic for me in uh, just the possibility of so many creation myths and uh, you know to kind of uh, follow back from uh, what we were just talking about with uh, Auschwitz uh, the the manufacture of inaccessible physical spaces is to me one of the uh, one of the kind of like most fascinating things about comics worlds. And then the demand to get us to re-envision the space that we're living in. And I was so glad that you included this particular panel because that uh, way that this retelling that we have here uh, where the Bible tells us that uh, that story in terms of time, one thing after another, first there was uh, darkness, then there was light your people remember it differently. They see the darkness as a tunnel that they crawled through to uh, to reach the light, a vertical tunnel. And so part of what you're seeing there is this play between uh, that spatio-temporal aspect of comics playing out in this reimagining of uh, our kind of origin story, our, our generalized kind of shared cultural origin stories. And the tension between what it means to tell the story in one way versus to tell it in another, because after all, it it doesn't say your people tell a different story. It says your people remember it differently. So it's less about uh, who is correct and incorrect, but more about which parts of that story were were more useful for the people who were creating it. Uh, which parts were more necessary to capture the experiential reality? And I think that contrast between the uh, that kind of temporal narrative of the Bible, which I think really gets highlighted, especially when you get into the begat after begat after begat, which when you read it, it just as you know a series of uh, a, a, of a a long ago genealogy, it's like, oh yeah, oh. But if you read it as each begat being this kind of like celebratory aspect of, oh, we're surviving, we're surviving, takes on a very different texture. And similarly, I think with, uh, with this, when you tell a story in terms of time, it's a very different story than if you tell it in terms of space. One of the exercises I always have my uh, students do, whether I'm teaching a literature class or... Uh, comics writing class is I ha- I, I take Linda Barry's uh, idea and what it is uh, and I have them tell a story from uh, their childhood as if their childhood is a place rather than a time in their life. Uh, something that they can return to almost physically in terms of sensations and that's really useful.
0: Right yeah so great I love that. Um kind of anchoring our students in the spatiality of experience instead of just temporal flow, right? Um, It's what comics do so beautifully. They ask us to pause, right? And to root and to anchor in these kind of spatial, spatialized moments. Um, Speaking of teaching, so, well, you just shared uh, a technique of yours, is there a kind of a Kate trademark in the classroom for teaching comments? <laughs> I do I, I do I, all
1: of my classrooms no matter what I'm teaching at any point uh, it uh, need to have a sense of play uh, and one of uh, one of my very traditional assignments is uh, whatever we're working on uh, you have the option of uh, it, we do journals, uh, so like I do, uh, I have students do lots of journaling uh, and those journals all have to take different forms so they're not like doing a close reading of this book and doing a close reading of that book. They have to engage differently. And so uh, in a literature classroom, sometimes I ask students to uh, stage a comic version of a particular scene uh, that uh, they have in a novel uh, and to see how spatializing that uh, changes the way that, uh, uh, that you take in the representation. Uh, but it, it really depends on the classroom. With, uh, with, uh, with com- uh, when I'm teaching specific comics, uh, <laughs> one of my biggest trademarks is I make them, uh, if it's their first encounter with comics, if it's like a, a younger literature class or something like that, uh, I have them read it. Uh, and then I go through a whole litany of details that they will have missed because they're not quite sure how to read it. Then I have them read it again uh, to return to that space and pay more attention to what's going on in the images because they're so used to, in literature classes, just paying attention to the words that very often they're not fully engaged, even if I prep them, they're not fully engaged with that uh, other kind of level of communication that comics have. And uh, so, like, there was a, a I teach a, a, a women in literature course uh, called Lost in the Funhouse Mirror, uh, and it's contemporary transnational women writers, uh, and uh, so I always have them read, of course, like Persepolis and Fun Home and so on, uh, and Fun Home, I, it, I tend to do that pretty early on, uh, because Uh, It's so visually rich, but so deceptive in its visual richness uh, that it teaches them a very good lesson about how to manifest those details very early on. We do like close reading assignments with individual panels or pages. Uh, My uh, intro to the English major students are actually doing that uh, literally as we speak over the next couple days on their discussion boards, where I assign two pages and they have to break down panel-to-panel panel transitions, they have to break down different points of view that are staged, they have to uh, break down uh, what kinds of things they're thinking about to, uh, to attach to panels in terms of the gutter, uh, and uh, then overall how things are staged on the page in relation to each other. And that's a really effective tool for making them slow down a little so they're not just burning through everything and uh, getting them to focus in on how those little details really change meaning. Uh, one of my favorite uh, pages to do this with is uh, it's uh, in Mouse, uh that horrific moment where the Nazi officers swing the child against the wall uh, and You'll note uh, if you're, uh, you know, paying attention to how Vladek is telling the story, this is not something that he himself saw, and the story is kind of second hand, and ultimately his story covers the actual image of this atrocious act, uh, because it's kind of, it's notifying us visually that he didn't witness this himself although he does know what happened and so it's this interesting kind of play between the textual and the imagistic where the textual is not undermining the imagistic so much as it is clarifying what we can actually get out of that mm-hmm. uh and from whence it comes because i mean you know it as with any literature class one of the biggest struggles to teach is uh it's uh how to avoid fundamental attribution error like who's saying what and when in what context and uh and so uh giving them this visual opportunity to really really see the ways that they might not uh be tracing the narrative uh it's uh including in other forms uh i think it's really useful just also a profound kind of ethical uh, issue, uh,
0: figuring out from whence things come. Kate, um, you've written formally on, you know, your classroom, and Batman Returns Us to the Classroom, Black Hole, V for Vendetta. uh, These seem to be kind of important sort of texts, graphic texts for you to kind of, I guess, bring us back into the class, bring the students to the comics, bring comics to the students I don't know yeah
1: oh god and all of them are so fun in different ways I mean uh, uh, Batman Returns is such a great meditation on media uh, and and so much of it kind of occurs in the background, and people, uh, it's, you know, once I start highlighting, okay, which of these panels is staged as a television show versus which of these is staged as a comic panel? Why do you take those in differently? How is just the shape of the panel cueing you into not only a different way of reading the panel itself, but almost a different way of thinking through the content? Because I talk a lot about uh about our temporal relationship to different kind of texts uh especially with you know film and television where you know i just start with the idea of how long does it take you to watch an hour and a half television show and you know students think i'm trying to trick them but you know the answer is the exact same for all of you whereas uh for a comic like it it takes everyone a different amount of time and that change in temporality changes your relationship and but when you get that kind of uh, television screen as a cue, you start to take things in more as if they are this kind of like television aspect, which I think problematizes some of what's going on in those panels in really interesting
0: ways. Wow, um, your classroom, I can't believe it. It sounds so exciting to me. I want to. I want to be in your classroom, Kate. <laughs> um, so. You are also, you don't just teach this, you don't just read uh, comics and sort of delight in the joy um, and pains of comics, but you create them. Can you take us a little bit on that journey?
1: Yeah, so I, I've been doing comics since I was a kid. uh, it's, uh, uh I had a long-run series Pencil People. It's not published by anyone except my parents. And every once in a while, I'm like an elementary school newspaper. Uh, but uh, just kind of like uh, familial antics and so on. And then I kind of discarded it uh, later on, kind of really to my detriment in high school. I, I, I wish I had pursued it much more when I was in like studio art classes and so on. Uh, But I started returning to actually creating comics as uh, almost a journaling means uh, and uh, a way of focusing in on particular events and sorting through them intellectually. Uh, So I started doing autobiographical comics probably about 10 years ago, and uh, I don't like really send them out. I just I mostly draw them for myself. Uh, I do uh, uh, comics to kind of mark significant things that have occurred in my life, and I also do every New Year's, I do a uh, resolutions comic, uh, and uh, that always draws from whatever comics are kind of uh, intersecting with the troubles that I'm facing at that particular period. So I can sit down and kind of think through, okay, what, it, what is it that I really need to sort through? Because the process of creating a comics page is really different than writing a page. And like, I'm a poet, I've grown up as a poet, uh, you know, I've done some very bad fiction and short stories in my time, uh, but comics uh, m- makes you enter this certain meditative space because you're moving back and forth between those two registers of communication. And uh, the page that's up here, uh, I'm I'm sorry, it's just in pencil. I just, uh, I don't want to ink until I really have a good handle on uh, how I want to ink it. Uh, This is from a graphic novel that I've been planning uh, for uh, seven or eight years called Top Heavy, which is about essentially growing up as a teenage girl in the 1990s with big breasts uh, and going through lots and lots of difficulties with that. And then finally, eventually getting a breast reduction. And uh, so it's a story kind of uh, of teen girlhood. And it's uh, when I initially envisioned it, I envisioned it kind of uh, as my story and uh, this story of this complicated relationship with my body. And it's still that, but it's become a much broader story about like more complications with, uh, with other people, uh, how other people were relating to their own bodies, how. Uh, our bodies betray us, uh, It's how we don't feel we own our bodies, how we're made to not feel we own our bodies. And, uh, and so I'm uh, using kind of different vignettes from uh, adolescence and then kind of early adulthood to illustrate the ways that uh, that self-representation is to some extent outside of our own control and the kind of complications that that induces with our own relationships with our identity, how that complicates notions of things like agency. Uh, And so those are kind of the philosophical questions that are going on. But I'm also having a lot of of fun, like, uh, you know, I just did a scene at at a high school dance that had uh, gone rather uh, alarmingly uh, feral, I think is the word, alarmingly feral. Uh, and, uh, I realized I, I couldn't represent the kind of energy of it simply by drawing people. And so I started doodling all of these like mythical gods and goddesses and like tricksters and so on and like multi-breasted goddesses. And so it, and I realized like, that's the transition of the energy at a school dance. And so I realized that, uh, one of the best things that I could do to tell the stories that I needed to tell in this kind of emotionally authentic and representationally authentic way uh, was to stop holding myself so much to that realism. And it's a lesson I should have learned years ago because I've been teaching it for ages, but I was holding myself to the standard of, I have to depict things as they actually were And It's like, well, that's how things actually were. We were we were little monsters we were animals at various times we were uh difficult creatures of the night and
0: i i it's it's just been a nice kind of breakthrough i love that you give yourself the time to really um kind of recreate in this way that you've just shared with us um the vitality in comics today where where are you seeing this we've just gone on a really beautiful journey with you through some of the scholarly works things that you teach in the classroom your own creation um yeah where where are where is the heartbeat of comics today
1: Well, you have the goodbye vertigo up there, and uh, it's, you know, I've, uh, well, the spirit of vertigo is not gone. uh, I I have to say so much of my kind of work, my career, uh, but also just like my my fun and my love has been invested in kind of vertigo as an imprint, uh, that I was really distressed to see kind of like their reintegration into the kind of broader DC universe. And while I understand reasons for restructuring, blah, 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 Uh, whenever I, whenever I saw a new title with that Vertigo, uh, logo, I got excited and I'm starting to get the same excitement from a lot of the things that are coming out of Image, uh, because they have some of that same kind of, uh, spirit of, uh, the combination of fantasy and sci-fi with very realistic and kind of practical issues, uh, and uh, they have the same, uh, some of the same artists working for them, some of the same uh, writers with uh, similar sensibilities about both the pedagogical and the, uh, uh, and the like, fantastical entertainment value of uh, comics as a form, uh, so nicely blended. Uh, but also this is a great time for independent creators. Uh, when independent creators are given support, and can uh, have uh, can can eke out the time uh, to actually do some of those creations. I mean, uh, "Tales from La Vida is a really wonderful example of that. I think because uh, you know we have all of these people who are kind of. Uh, going it alone uh, and uh, often without like a ton of support from like a publisher or an editor and so on, but are still managing to create these uh, wonderful kind of reflective stories that offer so much to a lot of our discussions and are able to provide like other places for connection. And uh, so uh, I think I think there's a tension uh, that uh, that other scholars are working on much more cogently than I can uh, kind of encapsulate in this uh, between that uh, spirit of independence among the independent creators and the kind of uh, creativity that can be fostered when you have some money behind you that's provided by the publishing companies and so I just I wish we could give the independent creators more money and I wish we could give the publishing companies, uh, I wish we could make the publishing companies have fewer rules. Uh, And uh, but uh, so I'm excited about uh, about a lot of different aspects of comics, but honestly, it's one of the things that I'm having trouble uh, figuring out where to start because, you know, we all have have limited funds and I want to support our uh, shop owners. creators creators, uh, and, uh, you know, everyone working in the industry as much as I can. And I I sometimes find myself in that moral quandary, like, how do I best do that? Where do I best direct the amount of money that I have to uh, honor the kinds of magic that these people are creating in my life?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wish um, in an ideal utopia... Um, that in fact exist, we see it in Europe with uh, different countries, that actually the arts, comics, graphic novels, uh, liter- literature would be fully, deeply subvented and supported by, right, at the f- kind of federal level. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so that, you know, we weren't living on Kickstarters and, you know, you and I worrying about Uh, making sure that the comic book stores stay open. Um, But gosh, you know, Kate, thank you. Uh, This has been really remarkable uh, for sharing. Thank you for sharing your journey with us. Um, I've learned so much. I know our listeners and viewers are going to learn so much.
1: Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this conversation. And uh, yeah, uh, can I just give a quick shout out to uh, uh, Superfly, my local comic store, and Tony, who has been... Uh, it, uh, Tony has kept me going. He's been uh, really wonderful support through the years in addition to, uh, you know, uh, running a wonderful shop and just uh, being a friend.
0: We need those comic book shops. We need those, you know, editors like at Image that are, you know, out there putting, you know, taking so-called risks, even though we know they're not risks, um, in ways that you'll never see the big two or even Scholastic um, do um we so yeah i'm so glad you gave a big shout out to your local comic book shop and uh, and thank you also for the shout out to tales from la vida